In your view, what are the most significant geopolitical events that have occurred over the last year? Well, I guess probably the Israel-Gaza conflict. Perhaps even more important is the Ukraine conflict, which has fallen below most people's radar. Probably a lot of people aren't aware of is the changes to the BRICS alliance, BRICS being the consortium of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and a few other countries, and also the push on behalf of various world governments through the United Nations to be able to implement central bank digital currencies with a digital ID and an associated carbon credit system. And what about the rise of AI and chat GPT? What's the geopolitical significance of that? Well, the rise of AI is actually quite an ominous geopolitical development because what it does is facilitate the establishment of a global police state in lots of different ways. Now, before I get into what that might look like, I need to say there's a lot of hype and hysteria about it in the media, and a lot of ignorant people have come up with some truly wacky ideas about what AI is and what AI can do. For example, a lot of people fear that robots will get out of control somehow and decide to terminate human beings for the good of the planet. And I can assure you that this will never happen. Not just robots, but AI can only follow its programming. If AI, uh, maybe with the help of robots, ever ends up terminating humans, it's because they've been programmed to do so by the owners of the systems that control them. The reality of it all is that AI is a complete misnomer. There's absolutely nothing intelligent about AI. It's actually more like artificial stupidity. What is commonly called AI is really nothing more than a machine for recognizing different kinds of patterns. It's not in any way intelligent in the way we normally think of intelligence. All it can do is regurgitate what someone has programmed it to regurgitate. Think of it as a group of trained monkeys. In the case of modern AI, systems like ChatGBT, they force feed these machines millions and millions of bits of information which they scrape off the web and wherever they can get it steal from copyrighted sources. Yeah, they do a lot of that. And companies like the ones that run ChatGBT are being sued exactly for violating copyright. In the case of modern AI systems like ChatGBT, when you ask them a question, it just returns the most common or mainstream input that it has been fed that matches certain keywords in your question. So essentially, it's a very sophisticated system for plagiarizing, and that means copying, what others have said. The old computer science adage is true, garbage in, garbage out. Now, where it gets interesting is its use in governance, in its ability to fully automate public surveillance and perform policing and enforcement operations. This includes fully automatic large-scale censorship of non-approved narratives. You can easily train it to look for a set of non-approved narratives, or you can just have it flag any narrative that is outside of the mainstream, which can then be shut down at will. The other thing it's good for is for identifying people who fit certain profiles. For example, identifying someone who hasn't been jabbed, who has recently purchased a weapon, who has strong religious leanings, and has watched the wrong video on YouTube. The worst part of it is that, like the wizard in The Wizard of Oz, malicious government actors can hide behind an AI system and say, don't blame us, the all-knowing, all-wise AI made us do it. It's not human error, so we nothing to correct. So its significance in geopolitics becomes much more apparent given the trend to centralising world governments, centralising policy across multinational states, including censorship policies, including health policies, including greenhouse gas mitigation policies. That's where this becomes a very powerful tool in the hands of the orchestrators to enforce and control the population. So are all these developments unrelated, or do you see a common theme? Well, geopolitics plays out at many levels. They don't always point in the same direction because there's lots of different factions 
and they're competing with each other to achieve their own private goals within the overall geopolitical picture. So think of it as many layers in an onion skin. You peel one off, but there's another layer beneath that. What is becoming clear from all of these geopolitical events is that the United States empire, or hegemony as it's properly called, is collapsing. It's losing its economic control over the world. Its military control of the world is also becoming ineffective. It's losing its reputation. It's essentially an empire in decline. America has been for a very long time the world's only superpower. So how can it be declining now since there are really no other recognised superpowers in the world? That view is essentially an American-centric view shared by America and the Western world after the fall of the Soviet Union. The problem with that view is that it doesn't take into account a lot of factors primarily takes into account the size of the US military. But size doesn't make for might. Take the story of David and Goliath. You can be Goliath, it doesn't mean you're the strongest. The other thing about it is that it predominantly focuses on the economic control or power of the United States. And that power ever since the 1970s crash which some of you may be able to remember, severely affected the US economy. And since then, it has been in decline. But it's only in the last, say, 20, 25 years that that decline has become critical, especially since 2008, that decline accelerated and it has only gotten worse from then. To a point now where the United States, while still being biggest, most powerful economy on its own in the world, It cannot, on its own, overthrow the combined economies of the competing nations. And this brings us back to the the BRICS, the Brazil, Russia, India, China, because they together have more economic power than the United States alone. And we'll talk a little bit more about that maybe as we go along. So is this slow decline, collapse of America a natural development, or has it been planned or orchestrated in some way? Well, not every single aspect of this collapse is scripted, like a play is scripted, but there's a general direction and there are forces pushing for and against the script. And we know what the final outcome is based on Bible prophecy, but before we get to that, um, I want to highlight a book that was published in 1990 called Keys of This Blood by a man called Malachi Martin, a Jesuit professor at the Vatican's Pontifical Biblical Institute, it was a consummate Vatican insider and an intelligence expert. Now, when this book first came out, uh, it created a little bit of a stir, coming out the year after the fall of the Berlin Wall. And I just want to read you a paragraph from pages 15 the, from the opening chapter. In it, he says, Willing or not, ready or not, we are all involved in an all-out, no-holds-barred, three-way global competition. Most of us are not competitors, however. We are the stakes, for the competition is about who will establish the first one-world system of government that has ever existed in the society of nations. It is about who will hold and wield the dual power of authority and control over each of us as individuals and over all of us together as a community. The competition is all out because now that it has started, there is no way it can be reversed or called off. No holds are barred because once the competition has been decided, the world and all that's in it, our way of life as individuals and as citizens of the nations, our families and our jobs, our trade and commerce and money, our education systems, our religious and our religions and our cultures, even the badges of our national identity, which most of us have always taken for granted, all will have been powerfully and radically altered forever. No one can be exempted from its effect. No sector of our lives will remain untouched. Now, the the question is, first, who are the players in this three-way competition? And the answer to that is given in the subtitle of the book, which is the Pope versus Russia and the West for control of the New World Order. Now, 
some people might say, well, you know, the Pope can't on his own take on Russia and the West. But the issue is that competition isn't about which individuals control the new world order. It's not whether Putin rules it or the Pope rules it or Biden or Trump. What we're talking about is which one of three different world orders will control mankind. Will it be a liberal democracy with individual freedom and capitalism, which we could coin the West? Will it be socialist and neo-feudalism with its absolute denial of individual freedom, which is what the Vatican has traditionally held as the ideal model for society? Or will it be a multipolar system where each state has its own system of governance and respects all the other states and their systems of governance, which is really what Putin would like to see in place. Now, as I said before, when the book was written, the Berlin Wall had just come down. The Soviet Empire was in the process of collapsing. Russia was in economic ruins. Its people were starving. Its resources and government were under control of Western interests. And nobody believed that Russia would be able to seriously challenge the West again. But here we are. 30-something years later, with military analysts now admitting, you won't hear it in the mainstream media, but Russia now has the best trained and equipped military in the world. So it leads me to wonder whether the book, Keys of This Blood, was prophetic or if it actually was a script. And as I said before, Russia is the one championing the multipolar system. So that one's clear. The question is about the West and the role of the Vatican. Well, it's obvious how a big social, political, economic power like Russia or some Western alliance could impose a new world order and control every aspect of our lives, but what resources does the Pope have? How can he enforce anything? All he's got is a few acres in the middle of Italy. How could he force an agenda on billions of people who aren't even religious, let alone Roman Catholic? Well, to answer that question, let's just think about the subtitle for a minute. If the competition that the book talks about is all out, it means that it encompasses economic warfare, military warfare, psychological warfare, and every other kind of warfare you can imagine. So the question is then what military power does the Pope have to send against Russia and the West? Well, really now. What economic power does the Pope have to utilise against Russia and the West? None. What tools for mass psychological warfare does the Vatican have? Of itself, none, really. That's right. It has none. And this is why the Church has always relied, the Vatican has always relied on civil governments to carry out its plans. The Church has always referred to the state, the civil power, as the sword of the Church. Now, in its vision for a new world order, how does the Pope plan to run the machinery of the state? Is it possible for a church to run the machinery of a state all by itself? When in history has this ever happened? Never. Never. The church needs the state. Call it a public-private partnership in order to effectively control the people. So we can see that the three-way competition is not directly between the Pope himself or the Vatican, I should say, against Russia or against the West, but between the states that are already under Vatican control against Russia, on one hand, and the Western countries, on the other hand, that are not under Vatican control. And this is why we read in Revelation 17.3, where it says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-coloured beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. In the Bible, a woman is used to represent a church. It's a metaphor. Israel in the Old Testament is often referred to as a woman, sometimes as a harlot when Israel was disobeying God, and sometimes as a delicate and comely woman when it was you know, obeying God. So here in Revelation we have another woman, and we read in verse 4 that it's actually a harlot, which is a church sitting on a beast. And in Bible prophecy, a beast is always a political state. Whether it's a kingdom or a republic, doesn't matter, it's a political state. And so here we see a picture of a woman controlling 
a state. Now this happens to have seven heads and 10 horns, which means that it's not a single state. There are multiple states that this woman controls. So what are these states that are on the side of the Vatican in this global competition for world control? We know that Russia is definitely on, not on the side of the Vatican because it's Russian Cut Orthodox. North. So we have a whole bunch of other countries like India and a lot of other Islamic countries, well, they're not directly under Vatican control. They have their own agendas. So it really leaves us with the West. Now, in the West, we have two groups of Western countries, those that are aligned with papal plans for his new world order and those that are against it. Now, the leading nation against the papal plans for the new world order is the United States. Now, there are different factions in the United States, even within the United States, there's a strong faction in favour of that, but there's an equally strong faction against that. But essentially, the United States, due to its constitution and its basic philosophy, is not aligned with the papal idea of a new world order. So what nations then are aligned and what nations is the Pope using as its champion in this game? Well, it's very clearly that this would have to be the European Union. And you may not have noticed, but the flag of the European Union consists of the 12 stars against the background of the sky, which is a direct reference to Revelation chapter 12, where we see this woman crowned with 12 stars. Now, Rome says that that woman is Virgin Mary. So the EU's very own flag is an allusion to its alliance with papacy. Now, you have to remember that the member states of the EU for the last 1,000 years was essentially the bulk of what we used to call the Holy Roman Empire, whose kings were appointed and disposed of at the leisure of the Pope. The Holy Roman Empire was the sword of the church, the same empire that enforced papal decrees, that persecuted heretics and set out to conquer non-Catholic lands to add them to its empire. So really the three-way competition is between the European Union as the champion of the Vatican versus America and Russia. And it's important to understand this in order to understand what's actually taking place in the world. Now, you also need to notice that the majority of the globalist agenda in the world today is driven by the European Union through a myriad of different foundations and non-government organisations such as the World Economic Forum and even the United Nations. In fact, the EU almost single-handedly controls the determinations and agenda of the United Nations because the EU has the most votes at the United Nations because it doesn't have a single vote. It has votes for every single one of its constituent member states, whereas a country like America only has one vote. A big country like India only has one vote. So the EU is the one that sets the global agenda and controls global affairs. And it is the champion of the Vatican in this competition to set up complete, total control over every individual, over every nation in this world. So there's one country that you've left out of this three-way battle for the world, and it's the country with the second largest population in the world, China. Who's it fighting for? Well, China is actually a very interesting player in this game. It's actually playing the role of a wild card. And specifically in regard to Russia, it's a double agent acting on behalf of the Vatican. It's strongly aligned with the European Union's globalist policy and is what you would call a frenemy to the United States, considered by some people in the United States to be a friend and others in the United States to be a competitor. In all cases, however, it is geopolitically very strongly aligned with the Vatican policy. And even though it might appear sometimes to want to be in an independent role, it actually isn't independent. It is very tightly controlled by Vatican interests through its various agencies. So you're saying that the EU is competing with the USA to control the New World Order, but I thought that the EU was a creation of the CIA as part of the NATO alliance under the direction of USA? Well, the CIA is a very interesting beast. Um, the CIA itself is not under the control of the United States government. It's under the control of the Knights of Malta, 
which is itself a secret military organisation, controlled directly by the Pope. It used to be semi-sort of autonomous before that, but about five years ago, the Pope took direct control of the Knights of Malta. And since they control the CIA, and you'll see that every single head of the CIA has been a Knight of Malta, it's the Pope that controls the CIA. The CIA acts completely independently of the United States government. It has its own agenda. Declassified documents came out about 10 years ago revealing the fact that the CIA had secretly funded the establishment and creation of the European Union, which was never in America's long-term interests. Now, because uh, the fact that America's financial problems are completely unfixable, the only hope that America has is to bring down others, especially its main economic competitors in the world, Europe, Russia, and China. But there's actually really only two competing systems to the United States world order, as we said before, either Russia and its multipolar world order or the EU's neo-feudal world order. And China, as a double agent, is quite happy to fit into either of those two. And it's only in the last few years that high-ranking individuals within the United States have begun to realise that the European Union is its frenemy and that it is actually seeking to impose its agenda on the United States. And you just have to look at the globalist drive for climate change. Where is that predominantly coming from? Well, it's coming from the EU. You just have to look at the drive for uniform health regulations. And again, that's coming from the EU for the drive for global censorship. Where is that coming from? That again, is coming from the EU. So America may play ball, but the drive is all coming from the European Union. And this is why Donald Trump and his whole candidacy for president is such an unacceptable thing. Because what he wants to do is he wants to put the United States first and sees the EU as its main economic competitor. He's publicly expressed the desire to pull out of NATO and impose tariffs on the EU. And so the globalists in the United States, and these are the EU-centric crowd within the United States, we could call them the fifth column if you like, want to give in to the EU agenda. And this is why Trump is enemy number one. They'll do anything they can to stop him becoming president. For example, this year, Congress passed a law making it impossible for any future US president to withdraw from NATO. You know, they are so desperate. And they've passed a law in Colorado banning him from the ballot in the presidential race next year. Because if Donald Trump comes to power, then the Vatican's vision of the New World Order will not be able to be imposed. So even within the United States, we have this competition taking place between the agents of the Vatican seeking to impose their view of the New World Order and the, what you would call the nationalist faction or the traditionalists wanting to impose the traditional American view of a New World Order. Now, there's lots of examples of how this competition between Europe and America is taking place. The whole Ukraine conflict is an interesting exercise in this fact. Now, people wonder why the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was blown up, as Seymour Hersh, the famous journalist, has revealed by the United States in conjunction with the UK. And the main reason for this is that Europe was becoming more productive than the United States. For example, America was importing large numbers of vehicles and other products from Germany, undermining their own domestic market. So the way to solve that problem was to sink Europe by denying it a cheap source of energy, which was natural gas from Russia. And now the EU has to buy more expensive natural gas in the United States, which not only makes their industry less competitive, but it benefits the United States in that, first of all, the EU has to hand money over the United States for the natural gas. And secondly, the EU can no longer compete against the United States in terms of its industry and loses market share to American corporations. So that's one example of this competition between America and the EU. At the same time, America was seeking not just to sink Europe's competitiveness, but also to completely destroy Russia. 
So America here is playing this three-way game again, hoping through the Ukraine conflict to defeat its two main competitors. But actually what's happened is that it has exposed the weaknesses of the USA, both militarily and economically. So what is the Vatican's plan through the EU to take down America and Russia and establish world dominion? At the 50,000 foot level, very simple plan. And the first of all is to take down the weaker of its two competitors, which at the time was the USSR, and then use its control of the weaker, a defeated enemy, to take out its stronger enemy, the USSA. Now, the USSA, that's what it is. The United States of Soviet States. Sorry, sorry, it's not the United Soviet States of America. It's just a Freudian slip there. It's the United States of America. Now, in order to take down the USA, it has to be first robbed of its strengths. So what is it that made the United States strong? Well, first of all, the whole notion of individual freedom gave the United States a resilience and a strength that other countries couldn't match. So that has to be taken away. Secondly, the whole concept of democracy made America strong because it brought people together and united them as individuals. So that has to be taken out of the way. And lastly, it was the industrialization of the United States which gave it its strength and brought it to the fore of the world power starting with the turn of the last century. So it has to be robbed of those three things. Now, the way this is happening is through a combination of the green agenda, the climate change agenda, which is all about deindustrializing industrial nations. It's through George Soros's Open Society Foundation, which is all about denuding nations of their identity and culture and creating divided factions within society that are always at war with each other. It's through European-centric organisations such as the World Economic Forum, and it's by trying to destroy America with internal problems. And it's quite interesting. The things that weaken the United States are things that actually strengthen the European Union and vice versa. So if we look at, well, when EU or the Holy Roman Empire was strong, what things were, made it strong? Well, first of all, it was authoritarianism. It was monarchic control. It was uniformity. It basically puts people in the role of cogs in a machine, machine of governments. And that's what makes EU strong, which, of course, makes... United States weak. The game plan is to, to rob it of its strength. The United States has no idea that it is directly competing against the Vatican through the EU. And so America's been looking the wrong way. So the EU says, oh, we're scared of Russia. We need you to take out Russia. America says, yes, we will ride in on our white charger and defeat Russia for you. Here's some weapons and money and whatever you need. The problem is that it's actually the EU goading the United States to exhaust itself militarily and financially on the rocks of the shores of Russia and thereby to weaken it. Looking at it from slightly deeper, the Vatican, through its agents, co-opted the United States first to set up the European Union, then co-opted the United States to overthrow the USSR, it then tricked the United States into moving all of its industrial base offshore, which weakens the United States both economically but more importantly militarily because now it can't produce enough weapons to fight a major war against a modern army. It can take out a few goat herders here and there, but that's about it. And it's tied up America in a lots of military expeditions that also weaken it. Worst of all, cause it to lose international prestige and influence. And finally, it's working to cause the internal collapse in the United States morally, politically, and economically. And we can actually see this all being played out right now in what's taking place. So how far are they through this plan, to master plan to destroy America and control the world? Well, right now, um, the United States is in the middle of an existential crisis unlike any that it has ever faced before. From a domestic perspective, there's a famous Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist called Chris Hedges who identifies as a socialist. 
So he's not a right winger by any stretch of the imagination. And this is what he says, quote, We now live in a nation where doctors destroy health, where lawyers destroy justice, where universities destroy knowledge, where governments destroy freedom, the press destroys information, religion destroys morals, and our banks destroy our economy, end quote. And I think in a nutshell, that's the, pretty much the best way to describe it. It's now becoming obvious to all thinking people that the United States is on the brink of complete disaster. Militarily, it can't find enough recruits to maintain its navy or army, now at its lowest level since World War II. It can't produce enough weapons to supply its proxy war in Ukraine and has used the excuse of having to give all of their stocks of ammunition to Israel to explain why they can't give Ukraine anymore. Economically, the, the national debt is so high that it has to borrow more money to pay the interest on its existing debt, which is rising exponentially each year, which is why they've just had to reduce interest rates so the government can afford to pay its debts, even though reducing interest rates is going to create more hyperinflation next year. And politically, at no time in the history of the United States has its citizens expressed less confidence in the political system than today. So much so that there's a number of states like California and Texas that have had enough with the federal government and want to break away from the USA and go their own way and have started the legal processes to do so. You mentioned uh, about Ukraine. I wanted to get deeper about that. What specific part does it play into this conflict? Well, the Ukraine war does two things. It actually weakens America and Russia simultaneously. Well, at least the hope was that it was going to weaken Russia. And America thought that if it, together with Europe, placed sanctions on Russia, that the whole Russian economy would collapse. But they got it completely wrong. They, what they found out is that the majority of the world's nations, where 80% of the people live, don't actually really care about what America wants. So the sanctions against Russia have had zero effect whatsoever. Uh, Russia is actually stronger today than it was two or three years ago. But what it, what's happened is that it's made obvious that America no longer has the respect of the world and that its threats of economic sanctions actually have little to no effect. And even its military threats have little to no effect if Russia and or China is willing to back you up. This is clear with what happened in Syria. In fact, just a month or two ago, Syria has now been readmitted into the Arab League of Nations by Saudi Arabia. And Turkey, one of the main enemies against uh, President Assad of Syria has welcomed Assad with open arms. So all of the machinations of America in regard to the Middle East completely fall on, flat on their face. And so this has made it very clear to the world that America is no longer have the power to enforce its will on nations. So we have the situation where not only have they failed in Syria, but they were humiliated by a few goat herders in Afghanistan and had to leave with their tail between the legs. And all the Ukraine does is show up America's weakness in trying to isolate Putin and Russia from the international world community. America's completely failed. In fact, just two weeks ago, Putin had a victory tour of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and then met with the leader of Iran, where he was greeted like the world emperor. His private jet was accompanied by four fully armed SU-34s in these nations' airspaces, which has never been permitted. They were flanked by F-16s from these Arab nations. When he touched down the ground and was escorted to the royal palaces, there was flybys by the national jets with smoke of the, of the colours of the Russian flag. It's very impressive to see the way that he was received. Not only that, but just a month ago, the BRICS consortium has added to its members Saudi Arabia, which is very important because of the deal that America struck with the Saudi Arabians in the 1950s and 60s saying that they would only sell oil in American dollars. 
now they do not longer sell oil in American dollars. And if you remember, the reason for Iraq being attacked and Libya being attacked in the past by America was because both of those countries had agreed to and begun selling oil not in American dollars. And so Saudi Arabia now turning away from American dollars and selling petrol in yuan, which is the Chinese currency, is a major blow to America's hegemonic control over the world economy. So we've just been talking about the Middle East, but how does the conflict in Gaza play into it? Well, it's a very interesting um, question because it's become apparent to many countries around the world that the United States is manipulated by powerful interests behind the state of Israel. Now, some people say that it's Israel that controls the United States. Well, it's not Israel, it's the interests behind Israel. Now, I mean, it's, it's quite interesting to think about why is it that the whole problem in, in Israel popped up just when the US weakness in the Ukraine was becoming obvious to everybody? Was it a distraction to try to hide America's weakness? Or is it actually done on purpose to further expose America's weakness and erode global confidence in America? For example, they recently had a vote United Nations about a ceasefire in Gaza. And every single country in the world voted for it, except for a few abstentions. The only vote against was Israel and the United States. And the whole world knows what's going on in Gaza. And America is showing its complete disregard for human life, exposing its moral weakness. But it's not actually the conflict between the Palestinians and Israel, which is most interesting here. That, that, that is a pretext for what follows after. For example, more important than what's happening in Gaza is what's happening in the Red Sea right now. About 10 to 15% of all world sea trade is carried via the Suez Canal, and the ships have to pass through the Red Sea. Now, because of the Houthis attack against these ships, Four out of five of the world's largest bulk carriers have completely suspended shipping through the Red Sea. And what that means now is that ships have to travel an extra 50% further, which means that the cost of shipping is also 50% higher. The problem with this is that America then decided it was going to launch Operation Prosperity Guardian to clear the Red Sea of this Huthu menace. But that hasn't worked. They're still attacking ships. In fact, they're now directly attacking American ships, even though it's not widely broadcast in the main media. And what does this mean? Well, what it means is that no longer does the threat of retaliation by America deter enemy nations from doing what they want. America's lost its deterrence power. It reminds me of what happened in the Roman Empire. When it collapsed, the first thing that happened is that the Roman Empire was no longer able to defend its trade routes from the barbarians. And when those trade routes came under attack, it caused the complete collapse of the Roman economy. America is now not able to effectively defend its own international trade routes. And it encourages others, small nations, to push back against America's bullying tactics at which point, if the whole system collapses, America will completely collapse economically and politically, militarily, and every single other way. Okay, you mentioned the petrodollar. So how is the US economy, how is its economic power holding up to the stress that's being imposed? Well, you know, the, the key to America's might is not its military power. It's actually its economic power because of the fact that the US dollar is the world's reserve currency. What that means is that all international trade must be settled for in US dollars. Because of its reserve currency, and everybody wants US dollars, people are prepared to pay a high price for them. So there's a net inflow of money into America. Secondly, when America wants money, it can just borrow more money from the rest of the world. So essentially, reserve status permits unlimited borrowing and unlimited control over the world economy. With the unlimited borrowing, they can then spend an unlimited amount of money boosting up its military empire, its 900 or so bases, military bases it has all over the world. 
Well, what's been happening lately is that countries have been ditching the US dollars for the yuan. Now, with the sanctions that America places on individuals and countries, with America trying now to stole $300 billion that Russia had in foreign US reserves and is now trying to figure out how to give it to the Ukraine, countries are now afraid to hold US dollars because they realise those US dollars can be cancelled, taken away from them. And so countries are diversifying away from the US dollar and going into yuan, which is the Chinese currency. So last year, more than $1 trillion worth of cross-border payments were settled in Rimbimbi, which is another name for the yuan. 15% of all China's trade now is all now done in yuan and completely free of US dollars. Even Australia and Brazil accept the yuan as payments for iron ore. A couple of days ago, the Iraq announced that private companies can import Chinese goods and pay for them in yuan. Russia is now almost completely free of doing business in the US dollar. But it's made no difference at all to Russia's exports. Iran and Venezuela also sell oil for yuan. And as I mentioned before, Saudi Arabia has now agreed to do so. And because of the BRICS expansion now, almost all of the oil trade in the world is now controlled by the BRICS countries, saying that the petrodollar is going to be replaced by the petro-yuan. And even the US ally India is buying oil from Russia and the UAE not using dollars. So the days of the dollar as a reserve currency are gone. And as this trend accelerates, America will become weaker and weaker economically, unable to borrow money, and will have to resort to printing dollars, which is going to cause hyperinflation, which will completely destroy the US economy. Until now, it's been able to stave off hyperinflation because of its ability to borrow money. But once it can't borrow money, because nobody wants to accept American dollars in exchange as payment, then they'll have no recourse but to print money and cause hyperinflation. How is this decline of the American empire affecting the domestic situation in America? Well, what is happening is causing this polarisation in America. On one hand, you have the globalist faction, mostly represented by the Democrats, but not exclusively, who are in line with the, the Vatican's policies in regard to climate change and social justice and all those issues that are predominantly driven out of the EU. On the other hand, you have essentially mostly Republicans, some independents, who are diametrically opposed to that, and they want to return to what America was. They don't see any future in this new direction that America has been heading in for the last decade or so, and they want to return back to what it was. That means a return to God, a return to old-fashioned principles, a return to morals, a return to sound financial management, return to small government. So what we're seeing is that it's causing a complete breakdown of American society. So the political persecution of Donald Trump just exasperates the situation. I mean, this political persecution is based on completely novel interpretation of the law, of various laws that have never been applied in this way before. It's obvious to anyone that, you know, what's happening is completely outside of typical application of the law. You have to recall how leading Democrat politicians have done much more and worse than Donald Trump, and yet it's all been overlooked. But Donald Trump sneezes and suddenly, you know, we have to put him in jail or we have to stop him from running for president. And along with that, you know, we have this immigration problem in the United States where... 250,000 people officially per month have been entering the United States illegally. Unofficially, it's more like half a million. So in total, there's somewhere between four to six million illegal immigrants moving into America. And this just causes a lot of resentment amongst Americans. Resentment against the illegal immigrants, resentments against the government that allows it to happen, 
This creates a lot of problems domestically. And so this is sort of coming to a head now, and recent polls by the University of Virginia Center for Politics um, show that America is now a nation at war with itself, a civil war. But it's not a hot civil war. It's a cold civil war. There's no shooting just yet. But in this survey, 52% of Biden supporters say that Republicans are a threat to American life, while 47% of Trump supporters say the same thing about Democrats. Among the Biden supporters, 41% believe that violence is justified to, quote, stop Republicans from achieving their goals, end quote. And 38% of Trump supporters also now embrace violence as legitimate means to stop Democrats from achieving their goals. And it's not only that they're prepared, that, you know, a third to, that more than a third of the country now is prepared to use violence against the rest of the country, but 31% of Trump supporters believe that the nation should basically reject democracy and take on some other form of government. And 24% of Biden supporters also believe that democracy is not a viable way to run the country. So if we get rid of democracy, all we have is martial law or dictatorship. So nearly a third of the country now prefers dictatorship to democracy. So the American government has now lost all legitimacy. And without people having faith in the government, its authority can only rest on a combination of coercion. In addition to this survey, another survey said that 40% Democrats and 54% Republicans think that a hot war, hot civil war, is likely. And one in three actually think that it's necessary. And in this coming election, 24, November 7, Texas voters will be permitted to vote in a referendum that questions whether Texas should reassert its status as an independent nation. So there's this large percentage of population in America who wants to secede from the Union or have a civil war. And this is sort of made more interesting by the concept of predictive programming, which is where the media or entertainment industry portrays something that hasn't happened yet in order to get the public used to accept the idea of it happening. And, for example, there's a movie that's due to be released on April 6th next year all about there being a civil war in America sparked off by states such as Texas and or California splitting away from the Union. So what we can see is that the destruction of the United States as an international power and even domestically, is very, very well advanced. Now, you might say, well, when the United States is gone, well, we still got Russia and China. Yes, but as I said, China's a double agent. So China will, in the end, capitulate to the interests of the Vatican. The Vatican's influence over China goes back 500 years to the 1500s and 1600s. If you look at what happened during COVID, the globalists, European American globalists all look to China as the example that the world must follow. Klaus Schwab, the head of the World Economic Forum, has publicly stated that China is a model for the rest of the world to follow. So, so once America's power is gone, its place in the West will be taken over by the EU. And then EU's only real competitor at that point will be what remains of Russia after it's also been exhausted. Because remember, Russia actually is a fairly small country uh, in terms of population. It may have a lot of land areas, but population-wise, it's actually a fairly small country compared to Europe. Yeah. So what do you see happening in 2024? So the political instability in the United States is getting completely out of control. And being an election year, next year and with the attempts to ban Donald Trump from running an election, if his Supreme Court appeals are upheld, then there's likely to be an attempt to cancel the election or not hold it all together. It could actually be the tipping point um, to begin a civil war. And the other thing is the economy is getting to the point, it's becoming also very unstable. And the economic analysts are forecasting a fairly severe recession Come depression. It wouldn't surprise me if something happens next year economically. We have to remember that all economic downturns last a number of years. 
from the time they start heading down to the time that it's really noticeable at the bottom. So something may start maybe not immediately extremely severe in terms of impact on the general public, but becoming worse so as time progresses. So that's also very likely a number of economic analysts have said that to be the case. It may be likely that nothing too serious takes place until the end of the year or beginning of the following year. But it's a very turbulent time domestically in the United States. There's also going to be a large number of elections all around the world. Two recent ones in Europe, we noticed that populist governments have been voted in, not globalist governments. So it's a, possibly a time of a lot of upheaval and a lot of pushback against the plans of the globalists. And by globalists, I specifically mean those countries that are aligned with the Vatican, New World Order, specifically Europe. And because of that pushback, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, so there's likely to be some attempt next year, more likely towards the end of the year or early the following year, to have some other grab for power on behalf of the globalists. Very hard to foretell exactly what form that might take. Obama just produced a video about a global takedown of the internet and the effects that that would have on the world. And we know that that particular scenario has been promoted by Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum for a number of years now. But it's just too early to tell what shape that might take. It's likely to be a very interesting year with negative ramifications for everyone. So what do the scriptures tell us about these interesting times that we live in? What insight do they give? Well, if we look at the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, at chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, we read about a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads the names of blasphemy, and the beast was like unto a leopard, and his feet were the feet of a bear, and his mouth was the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power, seat, and great authority. And we wonder what this leopard, bear, and lion have to do with it, and if we go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees this vision of the future of the world empires. And the first he saw a lion arise out of the sea, and then he saw a bear, and then after he saw a leopard. And we know from history that the lion would represent the Neo-Babylonian Empire. When that collapsed, it was replaced by the Medo-Persian Empire. And when that collapsed, it was replaced by the Greek Empire. And then it was collapsed by the Roman Empire. If we read about the Roman Empire, it says in Daniel 7, 7, And after this I saw in the night visions about all the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, strong, exceedingly, had great iron teeth, devoured and breaking pieces. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. Well, it was diverse because it wasn't actually a kingdom, it was actually a republic. Now, this diverse beast, it's different, it's terrible, it's horrible, it's strong. It, we're not told what it is, but... Essentially, we could describe it as a dragon-like beast. So let's call it the dragon. Now, we come back to Revelation 13. We see these four beasts. We see the lion, the bear, the leopard, and the dragon. So they're here in Revelation 13. And in verse 3 of Revelation 13, it's talking about this beast that received its power from the dragon. It says, I saw one of his heads as it was wounded death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. So... This beast that arose after the dragon, which is the Roman Empire, the pagan Roman Empire, it's wounded. It has a mortal wound, but at some point it's resurrected from the dead and all the world wandered or followed after the beast. So this beast is a kingdom, just like all the other kingdoms before are kingdoms. And this beast that arose after the dragon is a world empire. And historically it's known as the Holy Roman Empire. If we come back to Daniel 7, where we're told about this beast, it says that in verse 23, the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom. So again, we see the beast is a kingdom or a political state. Fourth kingdom upon the earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms, shall devour the whole earth and tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. So after the Roman Empire, collapse there would be 10 kings would arise another shall arise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings and he shall speak great words against the most high and shall wear out the saints of the most high and shall think to change times and laws 
So what we see is that after the collapse of the Roman Empire, the prophecy told us that there would be 10 kings and that there would be another one arise from them after these kings of a religious nature. It says, You shall speak great words against the Most High, shall wear out the saints of the Most High, shall think to change times and laws, which means that it's essentially a religious entity. Now, if, if we come back to Revelation 13, this beast that has bits of all these other beasts in it with seven heads and ten horns that is wounded to death and his wound is healed is, in Revelation 17, controlled by a church. So we see the same imagery here of these ten horns being controlled by a religious power. And we read in Revelation 17.3 where it says, He carried them away in the spirit, and I saw a woman sitting on scarlet, coloured beast full of names of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones on her forehead was a name written mystery babylon the great mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth and in verse 8 it explains that the beast that thou sawest was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit that means that this this is the kingdom that existed in the past but doesn't currently exist the political power state doesn't currently exist but it's made up of all these other kingdoms it says that it shall ascend out of the bottomless pit. Now, what's interesting is that so in the Old Testament, when you died, you were said to have gone into the pit. And this beast ascends from the pit. It comes out of death. So this is a kingdom that was and is destroyed and re-emerges. It says that they shall dwell on the earth, shall wander when they behold the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, the Holy Roman Empire is this beast that was and is not because it was destroyed in 1798 by Napoleon's armies and yet it's re-emerging today. And he says that the ten horns which are saw as the ten kings which have received no kingdoms as yet but received power as kings one hour of the beast. They have one mind to give their power and strength unto the beast. So the same ten kings that established the Holy Roman Empire will again re-establish a new empire. Today... It's called the European Union. Now, what's most interesting about this prophecy is that we saw that in order for the Holy Roman Empire to emerge, the Roman Empire had to collapse. And when it did so, ten kings combined their forces to become the new global power. Now, the number ten is symbolic. doesn't necessarily mean that it's ten literally. Uh, ten just means complete. What's interesting about this is that the rise of the beast and the man of sin that controls the woman that rides the beast can only take place when the United States is overthrown. In the context of Malachi Martin's geopolitical description of the three-way competition, the EU can only arise as the dominant world power when the United States collapses. And what's most interesting about that is another prophecy we read in 2 Thessalonians 2.3, which says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above everything that's called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Then verse 6, And now you know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. So what he's saying is that that man of sin cannot arise because somebody is holding him back. It's withholding him. And verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work on it. He who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. It means that this power that is holding back the rise of the EU will be taken out of the way. And verse 8, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So it's very clear this is talking about something that takes place leading up to the return of Jesus Christ. So the question is, you know, who is it that holds back the rise of the man of sin that must be taken away? Well, that is the global U.S. power. The man of sin cannot set up his global government while the United States remains. It must be overthrown. And what's important about this turn of geopolitical events and the very obvious now decline of the U.S. is that we know this time is near. In Matthew 24, 42 to 44, it says, Jesus said, Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched, and he would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be ye also ready, 
For in such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. You just read that the scripture commends us to watch, and if the good man of the house had watched, he would have known when the thief would come. How are we to watch? How can we prepare for what is coming? Well, watching is all about understanding what's happening in the world beyond what the mainstream media tells you. Because there's an old proverb that says 90% of the world has no idea what's going on. And it's not because of lack of television newspaper. 9% of the people know what's going on but can't do anything about it. And 1% are actually in control of the situation. We don't want to be in the 90%. We want to know what's going on. So really, the, the most important part for us is how to be ready. Now, there's many different aspects of readiness. There's financial readiness. For those who want to know what the future holds financially for you, I strongly recommend you watch a documentary called The Great Taking. You can find it on thegreattaking.com. Look it up. It'll give you some ideas about what to expect and how you might prepare for what's coming physically. We'll get used to eating a simple diet as possible, which is going to do great things for your health and make it easier for you to adjust to what's coming. Spiritually, we also need to be ready. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people in the same situation that the Jews were in in Jesus' day when he said to them that they knew not the hour of their visitation. In other words, they really weren't ready for his coming. And the problem with the Jews was that they felt so sure that God was going to look after them no matter what because they kept the law, they believed in him, they were the children of Abraham, that they completely overlooked what God actually requires from man. It's not following a bunch of rituals. It's not being a member of a particular club. It's not doing a whole bunch of good work. It's very clearly spelt out by the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8, which says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of thee, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, we know what justice and mercy are, but what does it mean to walk humbly? First of all, it is not to show humility to our fellow men, but to show humility towards God. What does it mean to be humble towards God? The problem with the Jews in Jesus' days is that they presumed that they were in God's good book. They presumed on God. And because of that, they were spiritually proud. They thought they were better than all of the Gentiles around them. They were better than the Samaritans. They were better than the sinners. And Jesus said to them that their house was left unto them desolate because the religion that they practiced was not at all what God required from them. They thought religion was this external practices, external manifestations, external profession of belief. That's not what God required. He required an internal conversion of the soul. He required repentance towards God. Now, there's this interesting quote from a book called Maranatha, page 37, which I'll read. It says, The tempest is coming, and we must get ready for its fury by having repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. The Lord will arise to shake terribly the earth. We shall see troubles on all sides. Thousands of ships will be hurled into the depths of the sea. Navies will go down and human lives will be sacrificed by the millions. Fires will break out unexpectedly and no human effort will be able to quench them. The palaces of the earth will be swept away in the fury of the flames. Disasters by rail become more and more frequent. Confusion, collision and death without a moment's warning will occur on the great lines of travel. The end is near. Oh, let us seek God while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The prophet says, Seek ye the Lord, all ye meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness, seek meekness. It may be that ye shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. And the most important phrase there is to get ready by having repentance towards God. Repentance is something that is severely lacking in the world today. Severely lacking not just among agnostics and atheists who don't care, but also among Christians who think that they don't need to repent because they believe in Jesus and that's all that matters. Repentance is about realizing your standing with God, that his standards of righteousness and holiness are much, much higher than yours, and that while he is merciful, he does not overlook sin, he does not overlook iniquity. 
It does not overlook selfishness. It does not overlook pride. It does not overlook covetousness. It does not overlook the corruption of our souls. He sees what we do not see because we are blind to it, because we do not want to see. And God says to us, be humble, repent. Don't set aside my justice and presume upon my mercy. But now while it is time, repent and humbly seek the Lord that you might be prepared to face the coming storm. Whether that storm breaks in 2024 or 2025, we cannot tell. But it seems like the world is now living in a wily coyote moment. It has run off the cliff, but it still doesn't realise that it's gone past the edge of the cliff because it hasn't looked down yet. But any moment, it will start to plummet. But then it will be too late. So the geopolitical events in the world today basically are telling us that the game, the three-way competition is nearly up. And we know very clearly from Revelation that Jesus will come to fight against the beast and his armies and that the beast and the ten kings only rule for a very short period of time before that happens. So we cannot say whether it's next year or the year after, but it cannot be too many years ahead. So we should start preparing for that moment today. Thank you for listening to the Year in Review. We apologize for bad audio quality and endeavor to fix this in the future.